And now, the Rathband tapes. Episode 7. Chicken Wraps. Badger's Hats. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband tapes. My name is Tony Horn. I'm in Lancashire, England, ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband. In South Australia, his twin, Darren. In previous episodes, we've shown you, with help of original audio from David that I recorded in the writing of the book Tango 190, the background to the case, so that leads up to the night in question, the night in question, the manhunt in Rothbury, Northumberland, but of course, most recently, in the last couple of episodes, whilst that manhunt was underway, we focus on David's story, which was getting him ready for home, and then of course, getting home, and really dealing with blind from a physical point of view, and a mental point of view. In terms of the timeline, that takes us up to roughly about the third week of July 2010. Darren, when did you leave the UK and head back to Australia, if you can remember? I was actually asking about uh, Angie the other day about this, Tony. We were trying to work out, I think I was in England for a good six, maybe seven, seven weeks. So July... Maybe the end of uh, mid-September. So that's quite a significant period of time and worth mentioning because it reflects how people that are thrust into these scenarios have to put their life on hold, whether that be because they're in this country and they're dealing with it or whether they are half a world away. And... That autumn, as we head into that autumn, there are very encouraging moments for David in the spotlight, which we will address in an episode ahead called 15 Minutes of Fame. I'm referencing the dignitaries, if you wish to call them that, that courted his company, but perhaps didn't stay the course, referencing things like the Pride of Britain Awards. And the reality is all of those issues that we touched on before about the day-to-day, I think. Now, I first met David properly just before Christmas 2010. And I could see it now. I went to the house in Blythe round about the first week of, of January, we 2011 had exchanged through a third party some messages over that Christmas period uh, following David's appearance on my radio show just before Christmas. And we've agreed we are going to write the book, Tango 190. The very first time I'm sat there in the snug at David's house, he mentions to me the trial. And Darren, I've racked my brain about this. And I don't want to say I was all over this story from start to finish as it evolved. 
I know you went to the hearing of the two accomplices in the middle of July, which is Carnes and Coram Awan. But I remember nothing being in the public domain in that autumn to the point that I didn't even know there was going to be a trial. Have I missed something there? Or was that the way the public would have perceived it as David did everything in his power and skill to preserve the integrity of the trial, i.e. not commenting on what was about to happen come February 2011. He remained silent. What, what do you recall of that, of the knowledge of that building up to the trial? Probably the same as you, Tony, really. I don't think it was highly publicised. Uh, and when you look at a sort of case where it involves a high-profile individual like David had uh, become then you would certainly think it would it would be front page or certainly second page of a major tabloid. It, it certainly wasn't highlighted as you would think it would. It certainly surprised me, and that just tells you that I guess you and I have almost a full set of facts and knowledge on David's story, but people listening this is pretty new territory for them and even if there is an awareness of the verdict which we'll come to in the next episode there won't be an awareness of the trial per se and spoiler alert as dark as this story is there are some real moments of comedy coming up. Let me set the scene for you. It's Wednesday the 2nd of February 2011. It's roughly Darren, 250 days since David was shot. The trial would last, I think, according to my maths, 36 days. And one thing that I did discuss with David, and I think we've spoken of, is that two points. Firstly, the trial is in Newcastle, where more or less all this took place. And secondly, for the amount of evidence that has been compiled... And whilst Northumbria police might have thought it was an open and shut case, there is a, a mountain of evidence from mobile phone analysis to DNA. We all know how long it takes for stuff to get to court. And generally, I think you move things away from the area where things happened. It does seem that the trial arrived very quickly. And I think I'm in a position to suggest this. I think we have a show trial where points need to be made. Oh, David, to be honest, Tony, David did tell me we had a brief discussion about the trial because I know how much it impacted on him, both mentally and physically. Uh, he did say he was made fully aware it was going to be a show trial and that the two offenders were going to be made example of. Do you think it arrived pretty quickly within... 250 days would you have expected it to be a year and a half later or something i think it, sort of touching on one point you mentioned about trials being moved i think that there are under certain uh conditions a trial can be moved to a different jurisdiction that's it, obviously if the, i think it's either i think it's usually the defense would raise that it wouldn't be a fair trial it's been in the press it's high profile which david's obviously case certainly was and then you're going to have a jury that's got to be not affected, they, they could have had, I'm, I'm sure they would have had a good argument to ask for that to happen. 
for it to take place in Newcastle. Isn't that unusual? On on the other flip of that coin, 250 days to get a court in Newcastle Crown Court, all the T's crossed, all the R's dotted, and, and to get a, or to be confident you're going to get two convictions, and it's not just for a bit like shoplifting or an assault. This is for, this is for certainly one murder, two attempted murders, numerous other robberies, etc., etc. Because they're obviously charged as complicit. Yeah, that 250 days seems a very, very short period of time. And in context with, uh, and this is what my, my statement's been from the start, Tony, how Northumbria ran their investigation and operations. I'm surprised they got anything together in 250 days. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because we have been critical of the way that events unfolded from the moment Mote is in prison and saying he's going to harm somebody, ordering the gun, and then some of the quite ridiculous things that happened in Rothbury. Behind the scenes, clearly there is work that has gone on and I think the court and what happened in the trial can make you respect some of that work. That may well often be the case for some police operations that in public there's a disparity to what is actually going on in private. I do remember a couple of phrases that David liked to use to me about the investigation. He said, yeah, my my boss has gone on a big fishing trip. He's casting his net wide. And the other, he said, he, he likes to walk down a corridor, closing cell doors behind him until we've closed every single door. And that is a particular reference to all the people that were in the circle, some of whom I don't actually know what became of them, but we're focusing here on Ness and Awan. I did do a little bit of rereading of a couple of pages of the book just to remind myself of a couple of details, one of which was that Awan was apparently known locally as Sean. I didn't know, and I didn't recall that. But when we talk about the names in this case, the first obvious point to make is the distress that it will always be called the Moat trial. And that causes a lot of hurt for the people on the victim side, and it causes a lot of frustration for the police because, of course, one thing that everybody is united in that has suffered in this story is that... Only true justice would have been meted out if Moat had been there to face a judge and a jury. The public know, Tony, on the on the back of that justice in the UK, what do you call justice when you can get out after you've murdered somebody? If you look at Sonia Oatley, who had her, her daughter killed, the, the person who killed her is going to be out after 17 years. So I think justice in regards to us was served when he pulled his own trigger. Yeah, and of course this comes back to the, you know, when does life mean life argument as well. And also exactly. we should just clarify, I think we've mentioned it on a previous, conspiracy to commit murder, i.e. the roles of Ness and Awan, uh, I think David outlined to me is, as, you know, the, the similar or the same punishment as, as actually doing it. If you are a facilitator, you are 
as much the doer in a previous episode we did tell you that david learned about the modification of the shotgun here's a little recap on that my personal belief i might be wrong but i think he picked the wrong cartridge for sam stubbard and he picked the wrong ones for me as well so that was what david told us last time and this was his conclusion had i been shot with what he'd modified it to be i'd be dead so a little recap for you there so the weapon is obviously a key part of the evidence and the dna associated with that is well dna is always going to be a big player in any trial but so is the use of mobile phones and there were several mobile phones at play one of them links the dna to the phone calls they have then found a mobile phone up on the A69, which was dumped, which showed DNA on the front of the phone from both Ness and Moat on the front cover. I think the word dumped's quite interesting there because some people do try and hide their crimes very meticulously, don't they? But if you're literally just tossing a mobile phone away, then you can kind of see where that's going, can't you? Ness and Awan might have had considerations about what might happen to them after this, but Moat clearly was on a one-way street, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I think if uh, there's certainly a puppet, and he's, uh, there's two puppets and a master, and the master knows the outcome, and the puppets just go, sort of went along with him. Unfortunately, they should have realised that, as we've touched on briefly, that if you are or an assist an offender in a murder and do more than talk about it, which they clearly did then you get the same sentence so uh, it's unlucky david used to call a wan in particular a silly boy to me he thought this was perhaps more ness's world but a wan had somehow got himself caught up in it and here's an interesting moment one point that perhaps people listening are not aware of they may have a recollection that there were some letters. Moat had written some letters and they were found. But so had a wan. And whilst everything is unfolding in Rothbury and whilst David is trying to have some sort of recovery in a hospital, obviously interviews, interviews are underway in Newcastle. Interview, he was challenged on his evidence he'd given, and they brought this letter out the one with Don't Burn It On. Uh, sorry, Burn It On. Huh? He'd sent a letter to his sister, uh, Wanad, and it basically said, I'm safer than safe, safe, safer than safe. And on the top of it, he'd written, Make sure you burn the letter. And they challenged him with that in the interview and basically started to challenge his evidence because the way the police work in interviews is they let you dig your hole then they obviously come back to you with a challenge where they know it's factually incorrect and they've done that and at the at the final hour he basically turned around and said that he knew that there was a gun in the unit that's quite interesting there there's ninth or tenth interview and when you look at a crime backwards and piece it together you do wonder how people could be so stupid. But in those first eight, nine interviews, somebody's sticking to their story. I'm safer than safe. And, you know, even in 2010, who's writing a letter to their, 
their sister like that. It's it's mad. And good yeah. work, I think, is <clears throat> well there. From the the police clearly, as David outlined, probably offering them a few gentle lobs and then coming in knowing they've got this letter. Oh, the, the thing, what you touched on briefly at the start of this week's podcast, Tony, was the fact that Northumbria police seem to have done a really well, it, good, oh, sorry, a really good investigation that, that sort of concluded in two convictions for substantial sentences. What you've got to remember is the story's already played out. So all they've got to do is, like you say, go backwards and fit the pieces into the story that's going to get a conviction. So, yes, they still have to piece those pieces of the puzzle together, but the story's already played out. So you would hope that they could do that. They're all, I would suggest, major investigation units or senior detectives. And they're, they're, they're investigating three people that obviously are not that bright. They're not seasoned, hardened criminals. These are low-level low crooks. They're certainly not going to be educated in DNA and forensics and the like to keep them out of prison. In court, and I said there's some comedy ahead, David, David would often say to me, Awan was talking as though he was straight out of a movie. The, the narrative that he was adapting was almost learned from either playing Grand Theft Auto, which I've no knowledge of, or watching Cops and Robbers. I heard something today, and I can't remember what it was, and I actually thought they've, they've watched a movie where they thought they could get off with it. Oh, honestly. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? And that, that underpins that your comment there about the naivety, or, well, you didn't call them naive, but you called them not the brightest buttons on the, on the planet. But, yes, that is a narrative yeah. that they... They stuck to. Didn't they use a narrative that they motored actually kidnapped them? They were under duress, which fell flat on its arse when they were at the chippy on their own. Well, this is the reference to the letters. You know, I'm safer than safe. And a wan writing a letter in, in an era, you know, 2010, most people have got mobile phones, but at a time when mobile phones are quite key to this whole operation, if we turn the clock back, Moat is under the window where Chris Brown is shot, is talking on a phone to Ness, his getaway driver. In prison, he's ordering a weapon, you know, on a phone. I don't mean to be too modern, but we, we don't write letters, do we? <laughs> like that. But you're right. And comedy alert, we've alluded to in the past that they rob a chip shop in Seton Delaval and they pull up outside of McDonald's. There's a cop in an adjacent car. Do you want to do him, Raoul? No, wait till he's finished his McFlurry. And I think when they robbed the chip shop, yeah, I don't know how I know this, but when they robbed the chip shop, I think one of them came back to the car and shouted, Wonga! And presumably, what, through the loose change in the air it's it's a mindset where there are plenty of opportunities for these people to stop themselves along the way there are so many points but of course as we look back on it now disbelief here's something that really really wound david up during the trial because 
A lot of the CCTV evidence, I'll read you an extract in a minute, from the time when they're supposedly hostages, involves a wan being in Subway buying a chicken wrap. But Moat had sent them shopping. No, the reason being, because of the tent, the tent was a bargain. And it was a four-man tent for the price of a two, and he just couldn't resist it. Honestly, I had to stop myself laughing. It's just a joke, Tony. Honestly, it's an absolute debacle. And you sit there and you think this barrister has paid thousands of pounds to represent him, and that's the best they could come up with. Yeah, it's like they're going to send their receipts to HMRC as <laughs> tax deductible. But but this is this. Listen to this. They wanted a chill out day. On the Sunday after they'd shot me, in his interview, he said that they'd gone back. They'd gone to sleep in the tent because they wanted a chill out day. <laughs> They've left, for all intents purposes, a police officer dead in a police car. Because what you've got to remember is, Tony, as well, he would have assumed that he'd killed David. There's no fact that that wouldn't have gone through his mind because he's discharged his, his firearm twice. So anybody with half a brain cell, which we'll give him some credit for, would have thought that would have killed him. Um, and now they're having a day off in Rothbury. Chilling. Chilling. They're chilling. Yeah, well, you're obviously going to have a camping camping holiday. You might as well have a day off. But what's, what, what is quite <laughs> funny is if you look at the... And I'm sure the public have seen the, the undertow of this whole incident from when it first started, hit the news, and then obviously progressed through. The only thing that was missing from the whole scenario, apart from all the tragedy, the people, the innocent people, is the Benny Hill theme. Because if that was playing in the background, Northumbria police would have looked perfect. Mount and his two associates would have would have danced a very good dance to to the same tune. Because it, it is just beyond any normal comprehension of a a murder, execution, and two attempted murders. It, it's just beyond it's beyond belief. COVID nineteen, coronavirus, the pandemic. Everyone experienced it. But no one quite like you. The lockdowns, the video calling, the life-changing moments. What you went through then. What you're still going through now. Every difficult memory. Has a different story to tell. That's why. Every story matters. There's still time. Share your experience of the pandemic to inform the UK COVID-19 inquiry and help shape the future. Search Every Story Matters. At Scottish Power, we want to make solar panels more accessible to everyone. That's why we're giving you the power to spread the cost of your solar panels with finance options. The power to sell the electricity you export back to the grid at a competitive price. And the power to make it easy as our green energy experts manage the whole installation process. Start saving on your electricity bills. Visit scottishpower.co.uk slash solar. Terms and conditions apply. Finance subject to status. This is really all coming back to me now and um, what i mean by that is david and i had written a section of the book which is essentially the the first week and the and the recovery night after night he would tell me in brilliant detail what had gone on in court and when i say what had gone on that means the evidence that he heard but also how people were reacting around him 
one thing that was particularly uncomfortable for him was how everybody seemed to be grouped together. It's very compact in there. You'd imagine that David would want some space. But he was also very good at remembering the language that had been used in court. And obviously a lot of people's defense and prosecution will revolve around what they say and how they say it. It used to amuse David some of the language that was used, but it also, I think, gives real authenticity to his testimony as an officer, that he was very specific on certain verbs. The thing that surprised me is how stupid he is. He drove off from Burtley, gone to the garage to work on a Corsa, because they were working on a Corsa. You know, as if you've just watched or believe somebody's just shot themselves with a shotgun, and you go and tinker. His word was tinker with a Corsa. I mean, who in the right mind, you know, you've just either watched or know your best mate has blown his brains out, or if you knew what was happening, has known that he shot somebody, and you go and tinker with a Corsa at the garage opposite the police station. So that is uh, Chris Brown's assassination and Ness waiting. And... The notion that just opposite the police station, he's going to tinker, you know, late on a Friday night. So I'm just going to go, just going to have a little tinker with the the course to see if I can get it started one more time. It's often little detail like that that paints more pictures than the stuff that we know, isn't it? It's, it, you know, I am a language graduate. Language fascinates me, but the verb to tinker there, I think, resonates splendidly. It is so bizarre, isn't it, that they go through go through this massive event and, and use language as, as basic as, as what David highlighted there, tinker with me course. They've, they've affected a multitude of people and they just want to go and fix a voxel. When you're in South Australia and the trial is underway... And let me just remind you, if you're listening, so much of this audio is new to Darren. What kind of updates are you getting? Because, I mean, he was in court and I was on the phone to him for sometimes four hours every night. What is your personal following of the, the daily narrative whilst events unfold in a Newcastle court? There's not a lot in the press over here. By that time, I think the interest sort of internationally is sort of faded all i was aware of that david had made a decision to go to court every day i think he missed two i think or maybe one due just to exhaustion and the fact that it was taking its toll on david that's all i was aware of tony at that particular stage the final details of what had been said what hadn't been said and didn't come until he visited here later obviously later on i'm going to read a passage now from Page 229 of the book, if you could all turn your pages in the congregation. Um, one of the reasons for doing this is I think actually the book does this good, good justice, but also two points. The QC, Robert Smith, 
and I only hear this from David's point of view, looked brilliant, a real master of language. And I know Darren and I have laughed about this before, but I can remember the moment David told me that the judge said to him, yours was some of the best evidence I've ever heard. <laughs> to the courtroom. Mr. Awan, the prosecution paused. Don't try and be clever. Repeating back the question was only done for one reason. So he had a few more seconds to invent a few more lies. Instead, he'd been found out and buried his raspy voice in more and more water. Give a guilty man a prop and he will work it to death. This was box office drama. I was shitting my pants, Awan raised the tone. What do you mean, Robert asked. I was really frightened. I was scared beyond belief. Though, of course, he had been safer than safe, yeah? <laughs> the liar continued. What about my family, myself, getting shot in the head? He was still shitting himself. And, of course, that's when the CCTV came into play. A fragile, timid, weak Awan, so unsure of himself in such great fear for his life, was right up there on video buying a chicken wrap. Were you shitting yourself when you selected the chicken wrap? Continued Robert. Yeah, I was, recalled Awan. So the minute you selected the chicken wrap, you were shitting yourself. What else was on your mind? Three jurors were starting to laugh. I was hungry, he reasoned. So you've just found out that your friend and the bloke you are with has murdered at least one person and shot his girlfriend... If you shoot someone in the stomach, you'd expect them to die, wouldn't you? And there you are, buying a chicken wrap. That's not the action of somebody filling their pants. Robert <laughs> nailed him. Uh, you know what, Tony, now you've just read that, I, I, I so wish I was there. These QCs are very, very good at what they do. They have a script and they are able to come off that script because they don't know what the the offender's going to say in the box. But they obviously are very, very smart and able to catch people out. And let's face it, they also knew the story because in court, the prosecution have got... They have to give all their evidence to the de defence. So the defence know exactly what the prosecution are going to say. The prosecution... Disclosure. ...only yeah. know that... The, yeah, yeah, through di disclosure. And... The prosecution only know that they're going to plead not guilty. They don't have to tell them their defence. I always refer to this kind of skill of the, the, the barrister of... And I say this to people when I ghostwrite a book for them. I, I say, give me 500% of the information. I know you can only have 100%, but I say, tell me everything. Don't embellish tell me everything and then i'll work out which is the 100 percent that we need if you think about 250 days on from david being shot the amount of compartments that a brilliant barrister like this must have in his head that he as darren says he has a narrative he probably has an understanding of where people like Awan and Ness will try and take that narrative in a weak defence. But at any moment, he can pull out a tone. So the barrister, Robert Smith, uses the 
the language that I used. He also is setting a scene for the jurors and he knows he has cards to play later, even if that evidence is available to both parties because of disclosure pre-trial. Sometimes it isn't what people know, but it's how and when you, you play it. And I think you can possibly hear in that passage the momentum of the prosecution and the crumbling of uh, the tamest of defence. I mean, Darren laughed when I referenced there a Wan saying he was, I think, paraphrasing, shitting it for his family and friends. And then I, you know, ad-libbed, but he had said he was safer than safe. I mean, there's an example of how people's stories fall apart, I think. One, you know, when you're faced with a, somebody who is a seasoned and very good prosecutor. This episode I've called Chicken Wraps, A Badger's Hat. Darren, I suspect you have no idea... <laughs> You understand the chicken wraps, but the badger's hat? Well, let's have a listen, shall we? Again, disbelief. And one of the only ways to get through this dark story is to try and find lighter moments. Well, what he actually did is they were driving up, um, I think it was the A1. I think it could have been the A1. And he'd, um, he'd shouted at them to stop the car, so they braked suddenly, for whatever reason they didn't know. Uh, Mo got out of the car, and then next thing he threw a dead badger onto the windscreen of the car. And it was horrible, it was really sick, and it made Nessie feel really poorly. Um, and then he got back in the car and told him to drive with his badger on the windscreen. And uh, he told them that he wanted to take it back to eat it and to make a hat. And that's why the next day they were sent out to get a needle and thread, I believe. When I say there is humour, obviously animal rights activists, we are with you. But it's this is a, a, a level of comedy that is below base isn't it is that the first time you've heard of the badger's hat Darren? yeah that, I, I had no no knowledge of that and, and i would like to say the badger was obviously by the sounds of it already hurt but yeah that's the first time i've heard of that story i mean there are no words are yeah, there? There I, I, are... i'm just i'm just um i can't say what, what do you say wonga do you want to do him row let him finish his mcflurry can you keep the receipts for the tent? A badger's hat, a chicken wrap, and there's plenty more. Some of his shopping list. I think he even asked for reggae reggae sauce, unless that's slightly been embellished in the uh, narration of the story. Now, a couple of serious points here. To return to the original theme of the location of the trial and it's acceptable to have it in Newcastle but I think the, the point is it isn't it it's about the jurors they it's very difficult to find people who have no knowledge or perhaps worse preconceptions of the case when it is on your doorstep and one thing that David 
would say to me. And he was extremely confident. I would, I would say to him, how did you feel today? And he'd go, evidentially, I thought it was terrific. And I could feel a butt. And he would say, but I'm just a bit worried there's a low baller coming. And I'd say, what do you mean? And without casting any aspersions on people that do jury service, he, and I think this is, Darren talking about the mental toll, I think this is the only real examples of paranoia, but he was concerned that you don't know who the jury are and that not necessarily that one of them could have been got at, but if you come from the same sort of world as Moat, people that called him a hero, you're going to have concern about how the verdict's going to come, aren't you? Yeah, and I think if you if you put it into context with the fact that uh, and this is no no disrespect to the people of the northeast because the northeast community rallied behind Dave, the, the 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 genuine uh people of the northeast with good moral compass got behind david and chris brown and, and knew what was right and wrong but you as a police officer david would have gone to trial i would have assumed in the previously and had things fall due to lack of evidence or a, a, a jury finding them not guilty. And what you've got to remember as well, Tony, is a judge can direct a jury and has to direct a jury in regards to points of law. So it's not over, or you don't get it over the line until you get that jury form and stand up and say guilty. I don't think, to be fair to David, I don't think it was a case of paranoia. I think he was just being realistic. And then you've got the side of David's not from the northeast he's a police officer you've got that small band of imbeciles that decide that moats as good as robin hood and robin hood was a thief so david i think was quite right in his concerns i think at that stage yeah paranoia i'll replace i think with angst um slightly better we'll come to the verdict in our next episode and there are still some mad mad moments around the moment that the decision was was called in one thing that definitely happened in court was <laughs> david deciding to leave to make an exit normally we talk about people making an entrance but he knew exactly what he was doing the point i left is where they said that they found DNA inside the bag on the cartridges, so I thought it was quite pertinent to leave them. He chose his moments to exit the courtroom, generally what he would consider five or ten minutes before a session was wrapping up. The impact visually of jurors being able to see him struggle to leave as they're hearing key evidence is probably a masterstroke. I don't think there's anything oh. in the rules says you can't do it. <laughs> no, there isn't, Tony. I think what you've got to, you've also got to remember is that I think you mentioned earlier about the the QC saying to stop repeating the question. Police officers, when they are trained, were given those lessons in regards to how to give evidence in court. So David would have been well aware on being clear, concise 
speaking to the 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 judge and then looking back at the 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 barrister this is all the things that you hone your skills so you do get that you've given good evidence because at the end of the day if you give crap evidence the one you've locked up gets away with what in theory they should have been guilty for so david walking out at the, the opportune time yeah you know what he would have thought that through he would have planned it to to have the most effect on the the jury because let's face it they're at a disadvantage straight off they don't know what's coming out from the, the defense's case so do you know what it was it was good of him it, it was a master plan he knew exactly what he was doing you know i it's nice to hear the laughter from you and it's not something that we should feel any guilt about laughing that such a serious moment has delivered such dry self-analysis from from david there that david's the one who got shot and even he was laughing so if you take take out of the fact why we are discussing it the, the whole reason why we've decided to do these podcasts is to let the public know what a shambles it was from start to finish, irrespective of who, who made it the, mo the most chaotic investigation or event. It was chaos and a shambles from start to finish. The only good thing that came from it was the fact that two of them got potted for, I think it was 42 years. So that's that's the only positive outcome from, from it, I think. What is interesting, and a word perhaps for the defence team, how on earth they proceed against such clear evidence delivered in such a dramatic, witty style. I have no idea what conversations they must have between sessions. Who knows how you operate like that? But I wonder if David removing himself from the courtroom was actually discussed because... There was a passage when Ness and Awan started, we believe tactically, to try and distance themselves from the evidence and from each other. When they first went into court, they were sitting next to each other. And now they don't speak to each other and they sit four seats apart. And yesterday, Ness had got a full beard and was dressed in, um, you know, not a suit, but like casual wear. And a one, to, both of them today were in uh, suits and ties, but they still sit four seats separately. Well, I think most people would turn up in court probably in a suit, but it looks like it was a, a change of tactics halfway through. Again, not quite on their wits from the off there, but you can imagine... If there is any seed of doubt to be placed amongst the jury and they're looking at CCTV footage of man buying a chicken wrap in Subway, etc., and then suddenly that person sat a few metres from them in a courtroom, is dressed in a completely different way, facial appearance looks slightly different, though he was talking about nest there not a wham it's possibly the only card they've got to play isn't it to sow that sort of seed of of doubt i, I think when you when you look at 
like you said, the strength of evidence. I think I obviously don't get paid the amount per hour that a QC does, but you would think that with this large amount of forensic digital witness evidence that they would they would have suggested that they plead guilty at the earliest opportunity and get a discount. I just can't understand. I understand why the legal team, they have to do what their client asks them to do, but surely there has to come a point when you're, you have to tell your client enough's enough. You are, you are doomed. You might, and even plead guilty at a trial, they would get, they would get some discount. But to go to a jury and get found guilty. I think many people who are never involved in the legal system that observe cases like this would probably draw that conclusion. But of course, you know, as a UK citizen, we're not brought up, are we, to believe anything other than innocent until proven guilty. I think you're correct to touch on the fact that There must have been a conversation between their legal team and themselves saying, you can make this easier for yourself. But difficult to get into the mind of, of a criminal. I think history will show time and time again that people, forgive the phrase, stick to their guns and are adamant in pleading not guilty quite often you see last minute u-turns don't you where people go yeah i will and plead guilty and that'll be the conversation that, that we just alluded to i think there's got to be as well Tony, can, there's got to be an element of either common sense or certainly logical thinking and again if we put that in into context with what they've done all together i don't think there was much of that before there certainly wasn't probably going to be any jawing and there was obviously it continued through a, a, a trial that they didn't use any common sense or any logical thinking. And they, like you say, they probably stuck to their guns and they got their sentence what they were handed down by the, the judge. So we await the verdict. I think you know what's coming. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, there is still quite a lot of stuff going on around this. And... To borrow from our American friends, the concept of closure, you know, does the end of the trial enhance or hinder the next stage of David's life? So we'll come to that. Next time on the Rathband Tapes. As it walked past me, I managed to mutter, enjoy it, Ness. So, remember, everybody has a story. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com and to comment on this episode, head to the Secrets of a Ghostwriter Facebook page. With thanks to Rob Jones at Ultimate Content, this is a Horny Media and Publishing production.